Thank you for choosing Miniaturist of Baptist Church podcast. We hope you benefit from this message. If you'd like to learn more about Miniaturist of Baptist Church, please visit our website at miniaturistachurch.org. that God wants. Very simply, he wants our first and our best. That's what he wants. He wants our first and our best. Not some of our surplus, not a grudging share of our increase, but our first and our best. So today, Sunday, is the first day of the week. Though I, I'm one of those guys who always thinks that Sunday's the last day of the week. But it's, it's the first day of the week. Sunday's the first day of the week. And we come to worship and we give the first part of the week to the Lord in worship. We, we pray, we sing songs, we have fellowship. And, and, those, and, and that's sacrifice. Right? Joyful sacrifice. But we could be playing golf. We could be sleeping in. We could be sleeping. But we choose to show the Lord that we love Him by coming to church. Not because it's a grudging obligation, but because it's what we want to do. God loves a cheerful giver. We want to give Him our time. Thus we come to church. We also tend to think about giving in terms of something that we all have in varying measures, which is time, talent, and treasure. We all have those things. Some have a lot of some, a little bit less than others, but we all have time, talent, and treasure in varying measures. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, point number one, time. When we talk about giving and being faithful stewards, we're talking about, one of those things is we're talking about time. And point number one in your bulletin, the best way to prepare for the Lord's future return is to engage in our present assignment. The best way to prepare for the Lord's future return is to engage in our present assignment. First Thessalonians 5.2 says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. We don't really have the option of planning for the Lord's return insofar as we know the date. And please, 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 the next time the internet tells you that Joe Bag of Donuts knows the date of the Lord's return, you have my full permission to call beef stew on that. No, he doesn't. Okay? The day of the Lord's return will be here like a thief in the night. It will catch all of us by surprise. It is up to us whether or not we want to be prepared. Matthew 28.16 tells us, I'm sorry, 16 through 20. The 11 disciples here are proceeding to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus has designated. They see Jesus here and he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded of you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is that command called? What do we call that command? 
the Great Commission. What is our present assignment? To engage in the present commission. Why? Because we don't know where Jesus, when Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back like the master did, call his employees together and say, I'm back. What did you do? Right? We can always make more money. We can create a cure for disease. We can replace lost goods. But what we can't replace is time. It is without question our most valuable asset. Once it's gone, it's gone. And there is no getting it back. We must today redeem the time and make it count for God. So how do we do that when we're talking about time? We do that through things like witness, mission, fellowship, and prayer. Witness, mission, fellowship, and prayer. Those are all things that require time. Over the last couple months, we've been talking a lot about um, asking people what the Lord has put on their hearts in terms of how they might serve the church. That's a lot like what time looks like in this case. How, how do you want to give of your time? Well, I spoke with one person who told me that the way that they're going to contribute is they're going to pray for the work of everybody else in this church. And, and then they were kind of apologetic about it. Like, well, I'm sorry, I can't do more. To which I want to say, you, you can't do any less. That's the most important thing we got cooking, right? If we don't have people take the time intentionally out of their day to pray about the work of this church, about the Great Commission, about how Sarah's going to do on her job, about how Moses is going to handle his studies, about how that little girl is going to be raised, about how we're going to pay off the mortgage. If we don't think about all of those things and pray over them, we will never pour gas on the fire of this church the way we could without prayer. We might get some boxes checked off, but we're never going to move the needle, right? The reason is, is that the Lord won't bless what we don't ask him to bless. And we do that through prayer. Witnessing. Taking time to talk to people about Jesus. Taking time to be obedient to the Great Commission. Sometimes it's really direct. Sometimes it's, I'm working at a Christian school, or I'm a pastor, or I'm a professional ministry. But you know what? That's not most people. Right? Most of us are cops, or we own our small, a small business, or we're in the military, or we work for public works, or we wrench on cars, or we're engineers, or something like that. We're just John Doe or Jane Doe going to work, doing our thing. That's where God puts most of his kids. But they are emissaries of his kingdom, cleverly disguised as mechanics or bookkeepers or small business owners or machinists or whatever. And we need to understand that that is our role. And we need to be salt and light and shine bright in those contexts. We want to make sure that in all things, whether at church or out in the world, that we are givers, that we're not just consumers that we aren't passive recipients of God's grace, but that we are active distributors of it. 
This includes specific prayer for people. It includes listening to the unsaved in our workplace, particularly those who say things like, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know what a great comeback to that is? Really, tell me more about that. Tell me more. For, uh, or, or, or sitting down with the person who's an avowed atheist or agnostic. Tell me about that. Tell me, tell me how it is that you've come to that conclusion. Would you mind if I asked you about that? Because that's, that's, that's different from, from how I grew up, and I've never met an honest-to-gosh honest atheist. Will you, can I pick your brain? Let's be honest. What do most Christians do when they come across somebody who professes a complete lack of faith like that? Come on, what do we do at our worst? We get out our Bible and we start banging. Am I correct? Heck yeah. Is that helpful? No. I mean, I honor the intention of getting this person saved, but nobody got beat over the head into the kingdom of Christ. Somebody reached out in a way that registered with us. They reached out to us in a way that we got, that we understood. They met us where we were. And that's how the Lord got his hooks into us. And we, I'll, I'll share something quick. I, I got saved because I hung around with a fellow cop who was saved. But if I had never met that person, if, if, if they had not, if we had not had that, I, I, I was, some of you might not know this. My wife and I, when we moved into our house, we were both police officers. I was a local cop, she was a state trooper. We were cops number five and six on our street when we moved in. The guy who lived kitty corner from us, he was also a cop. And I don't know how much time I spent in my garage with that guy, peppering him with stupid questions. But he answered every last one of them. And it was absolutely clear to me that whatever he believed, it was genuine. He drank the Kool-Aid on it one way or the other. But he was sincere. The Lord put that man in my garage specifically to answer my questions. And he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't snotty about it or anything like that. And what, what came clear to me when I spoke with him was, you know what, this guy's got the same concerns everybody else does. Quarrels with his wife over mundane stuff. Sometimes his car doesn't start. You know, his yard's a mess and full of weeds and... He's trying his best to keep it looking nice just like everybody else. It's not like, I was thinking like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? Like once you're saved, you instantly start playing guitar and wear a sweater vest. And that's just not the way it works. He spent time with me. He was prepared for the Lord's return by engaging in his present assignment of being faithful to the Great Commission. He was a giver, not just a consumer. He prayed for me. He, he prayed for me and my wife before he ever met us. When that home went on the market, he and his wife prayed for the people who were going to move into it. Isn't that remarkable? Our life is like a vapor, Scripture says, like grass that withers. At judgment, we're going to give an accounting. And what will we say about our time? That's what the parable about the talents is about. It's about giving an accounting for ourselves. 
with regard to the stewardship of the stuff that is entrusted to us by God. But notice the point of the story. It's not the size of the return that matters. It's not like God was satisfied or like only satisfied with the people who doubled his money. What was important to the master in the story was that something was done with the resource. Just something. It's not the size of the return so much, but rather the effort that's made. It's not about getting ten people to walk the aisle for Jesus. That's important. But it's that we took advantage of every opportunity to witness and to be salt and light with a view toward the Great Commission. What will I say today to this unsaved person? If I can't pick the fruit, at the very least, I don't want to bruise it. Right? I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person that turns them away. What am I going to do to water that seed that's already been planted? It would be great if I was able to say that prayer with them. But that might not be, I, I, I might not be the person God has selected to do that. But what can I do to water that seed, to be faithful to the Great Commission? It's not about giving the most money to the church, but that we gave what God laid on our hearts to give in a cheerful manner with a view toward spreading his word in terms of time. However imperfect the effort, when it's done in obedience and faithfulness, it will, through Christ, be blessed and rewarded. But how great our regret will be if we squandered our time. I don't know anybody that's ever dropped dead of a heart attack and thought, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Anybody that I've spoken to that has been close to death, and I've spoken to a few of them, their greatest regret is time. I wish I had time to make those relationships right. I wish I had done more to heal the relationship between me and my brother, whatever it is. It's never about, I wish I had made more money. It's always about time. When time is running out, we start to understand what's important. So, time. Point number two. Let your light shine so that people may see the sun. S-O-N. See what I did there? Pretty clever. Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. All Christians have spiritual gifts. I'll say that again. All Christians have spiritual gifts, and they should be producing spiritual fruit. Everybody on earth, saved or unsaved, by God's common grace, has some kind of talent. But all Christians have spiritual gifts given to them by God through the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up his church and for the common good. So those are things like the ability to be an apostle or a teacher or a preacher or the gift of wisdom or knowledge or speaking and interpreting in tongues. And we all know spiritual fruit, right? Peace, kindness, patience, hospitality, things like that. When we use our spiritual gifts, our talents, when we're hospitable or generous or when we lead or when we share our wisdom or when we teach or when we lead worship or play the piano or whatever it is, we are sharing a bit of God's character and he is glorified. 
He is glorified when we use what he gave us. That's a way to glorify God. When we develop our spiritual gifts by purposely growing them or stretching them, people get a glimpse of the creator. And it may be the person who gets that glimpse is the next person God intends to save. But even if that isn't true, even if that isn't the case, Christians are called to be salt and light. And we can be effective at doing so by using our God-given talent for God's glory and for the common good. Who here, on their way to work, prays to be a good employee? I'll cop to this. I, so I lead people at work. I've got, a, got a, a staff of 10 people that I'm responsible for. I pray every day as I'm driving into work that God will lend me some of his management and leadership talent so that I'm a good boss. Because I need that. And he gives it to me on a one-day renewable lease. If he doesn't want me to lead anymore, he will take it away and I won't be effective. Is that not the scariest thing? So, if you're a teacher, you want to be praying on your way into work, give me a measure of your teaching talent, Lord. Glorify your son in what I do today. Somehow, make your kingdom visible to the people around me. I don't know how you're going to do that. That's going to be your job. Just help me be faithful to mine. Is there anybody in this room that doubts that God will go, eh, maybe, maybe not? No. God wants to be glorified. He deserves to be glorified. He gave us gifts to glorify Him. And when we display our dependence on Him by asking for help in that area, He is honored and glorified, and He will do that. When we decline to use our gifts either in the body of the believers, when we say, eh, no thanks, I'm too busy, I don't want to, somebody else should do it, I did that before, or when we just sort of phone it in out in the regular world, when we decline the privilege of being salt and light, we're like the servant that buried the talent of gold. We have squandered our time on earth and our gifts that were entrusted to us by God. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on everybody. Everybody phones it in once in a while, including yours truly. I am preaching as much to myself as I am to anybody else in this room. But i got to be honest with myself. When I do that, I am burying that talent. I'm just I'm being lazy, and God doesn't call me to be lazy. How much better to, you, to use both our time and our gifts to tell people by words or deeds or both, about Jesus. How much better to use those gifts in such a way, particularly if we're working in an unbelieving workplace, to let people know, I don't know what it is about that guy. I don't know what it is about that woman, but they're the best employee I have. Nobody outworks them. They try harder than anybody else. They always raise their hand. I never have to worry about them cheating me on their hours. I, I wish I had ten more people like that. That's being salt and light. Even if you never said another word about Jesus. Now, let's say you've got that reputation and you bump up against that person who's struggling. You look like you're having a bad day. 
You want to go to coffee and talk. And they start to open up. When we open ourselves to the opportunity of being open to sharing the gospel, that's when God does his best work. And that's what it means to share our talent. When we take what God's given us and we put it to proper use. When we take that talent and say, it's mine and I will decide when I'm going to use it, that's when it gets buried in the ground. I was, uh, I was talking a little bit earlier with, uh, uh, with somebody in the church, and they were talking about just kind of, you know, life gets overwhelming, and, and it sort of seems like church and the things that make the, 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 the wheel spin in the church is something that's added on to everything else. It's just like one more thing, right? And they said something interesting. They said, I need to reframe my thought on this. It's, it's got to be the church first, right? Not necessarily Minnetrista Baptist Church, but the work of the Lord is what they meant. That's first, and then everything else afterward. When God talks about having our, our first and our best, that's what that person was talking about, right? I want to focus on what God wants me to do in his kingdom. Everything else will follow from that. It's really easy to move off that dime. Really easy. Because the world creates an enormous amount of demands on our time. Think about, and I'll direct this at younger people, but the number of time your phone chimes with a text, an email, a phone call, a tweet, all of those small calls for your attention, right? Ding, 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 you know? It's like having your, you know, a little kid coming up and tugging on your sleeve every 30 seconds. All of those demands on your time. If that's what we focus on and then just say, okay, you know, Sunday I've got to get over to church. But if we turn that the other way, if we tithe our time to God and our attention to God, that's what this looks like. We let our light shine so people can see the sun. Third point, treasure. So we've got time, got talent, treasure. God doesn't want our money and he doesn't want us to want it either. God doesn't want our money, and he doesn't want us to want it either. Uh, if you turn to Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. Um, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 10.22 says something similar. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So you can't serve both wealth and God, and it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Let's unpack that for just a minute. I touched on this a little bit last time I preached. Money's a great tool. Nothing wrong with money per se, but it too easily becomes an idol. 
Note what Scripture says. You cannot serve both God and money. In other translations of of Scripture, it personifies money as, as mammon, capital M. It gives it a proper noun. Cancer, it's saying either God or mammon, but not both. You can't. It's binary. People do serve money. Is that a real thing? Yeah, it is. People serve money or the idea of acquiring it. How do they do that? Well, they chase after it. They sacrifice time and relationships for it. They protect it. They prioritize it. It becomes the reason for working. It becomes the reason that they exist. It's a scorecard, right? They measure their personal value or worth by it. And they value themselves relative to others using that scale, oftentimes. Christians are not immune to this. Americans are particularly prone to it. Why? Because we're rich. We're rich. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with God having blessed you with wealth. Just know that if he did, that it's hard for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. So you have to be careful. You need to be cautious. Just like there's nothing wrong with owning a fast car. But you got to be careful, right? I mean, if you're driving a Hyundai like I do, you just don't have some of the concerns that you would if you were driving a sports car, right? It's a caution. It's not saying money is bad. What it's saying is make sure that you're using it as a tool. Note, Jesus says, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I said, we're all rich. What do I mean by that? If you have clean clothes on your back, food in your belly, a bed, a roof over your head, gas in your car, you're better off than most of the world's population. Not most of the country, most of the world's population, right? And I would also argue most of the country's population. Most people struggle with scarcity in their life of one form or another. It's hard for them to make the rent. They got to choose between gas in their car or the XL bill. The clothes that they wear, they bought at Pennywise or Goodwill or something like that because they didn't have the money to go and buy new. It's always a trade-off for them. They're one big event away from having to make a really hard choice. Most Americans are one paycheck away from having to make a really hard choice. If that's not you, friend, you're wealthy. You're rich. You have more than most. This applies to us. So here's the question. If it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, why would any of us want to be rich? Why would any of us want to make it harder? Right? Again, if the Lord has blessed you with wealth, that's great. That's fantastic. What do you suppose he wants you to do with it? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But what I can tell you is he doesn't want you to hoard it. He doesn't want you to bury it. Right? He wants you to do something with it. Our problem isn't having money 
per se. It's having the wrong kind of wealth. Okay? It's having the wrong kind of wealth. It's not knowing what's truly valuable. See, we look at money and we think, that's valuable. God looks at money and says, that's rubbish. That has no value. Right? Why? Well, because we can't take it with us. It doesn't have eternal lasting value. God wants us to be rich in heavenly treasure. People hear people delivering the message and they say, you know, oh, God doesn't want you to be rich, you know, thinks money is bad, blah, blah, blah. And so they equate that with, well, God, you know, so I got to drive a, you know, a crappy car for Jesus. No, no, it's not what we're saying. We're not saying you got to live in a hovel. None of those things are, none of those things are true. I will tell you that this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that you hear from time to time, that is snake oil. That is garbage. Jesus was a homeless, itinerant carpenter. He had no place to lay his head. So this idea that God wants you to be rich is hooey. It doesn't wash. Okay, That is not why God put us here. God wants us, though, to be rich in heavenly treasure. He wants us to bank up a ton of heavenly treasure. And he gives us a lot of ways to do it. But he wants it to be treasure that lasts. Not treasure that you take with you, but treasure that you send ahead. Treasure that you send ahead. You put it on deposits so that when you get there, you got a whole bunch of heavenly treasure. What does that look like? Those are the crowns and the blessings that we receive when we are obedient to God. I've got a couple verses for that in just a minute. But the idea that God doesn't want us to be rich is only true when we're thinking about what we think about wealth down here. God wants us to be wealthy with treasure in heaven. He's not a skimpy God. He's not like, "Eh, you know, that's minimum wage is good enough for you. No, baloney. He wants you to have a lot of heavenly treasure. And he has, he's wired us for reward so that our obedience is rewarded that way. So how do we do that? Generosity, giving, tithing. By using the resources that God gives us, time, talent, and treasure, to store up heavenly treasure. And in doing so, we break earthly money's hold on us and we use it as a tool and not as a God. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. Tools that are properly used. So if you're wrenching on a car or if you're a carpenter or whatever, you take a look at a skilled carpenter's tools or a skilled mechanic's tools, and you will notice something very quickly about them. They're shop-worn. There's nicks and scratches and scrapes on there from all of the work that the tools have been asked to do. Right? They're stained. You can tell they've been used. The talents that the servants sent out would have gotten nicked and dented in the course of being passed hand-to-hand through those investments. Am I right? It's just like if you take old change out of your pocket, it's scratched and it's dented. Right? It's nicked up. You can tell that the money's been around for a long time. In the course of being passed from hand to hand as the investment grew. That's how God 
intends for his gifts to us to look at the judgment day. They should be used. A buried talent, by contrast, will be returned to its owner shiny. You can tell it hasn't been used. God wants us to use our tools, the time, talent, and treasure that he gives us, because shiny tools are useless tools. I'll say that again. Shiny tools are useless tools, not because they're defective, but because they're not used. If you don't use them, you might as well just not have them. Am I right? They're not being used for their intended purpose. They're just hanging up in the shop. It's a nice display, but they're not being used. God doesn't want our money in the sense that he doesn't want us to grasp it. That's what I mean by he doesn't want us to want us either. If we get a great big pile of cash, if we get that promotion, if we get that raise, he wants us to look at that as, I've given you a new tool. How are you going to use it? And if you don't know how to use it, just ask him. He'll show you. He'll show you. He wants us to use it as a tool for his kingdom, and he invites us to invest it in heavenly treasure for an eternal return. All right, last point. Our giving needs to be cheerful, not grudging. Amen? Ah, here's your ten bucks, right? Here's how we want to think about cheerful giving. Mothers in the room, if I'm your son, and I came and I gave you these flowers, and I said... Here's your flowers. I had to buy them because it's Mother's Day. <laughs> kind of takes the blush off the rose, right? As opposed to, Happy Mother's Day. I love you. I got you chrysanthemums or whatever those are, right? <laughs> I don't know. They're flowers. <laughs> tulips. There we go. I got you tulips because I know how much you like tulips. Now let's go to Scotty B's for brunch, right? Intention and attitude makes a difference, not only to mom, but to God. God loves a cheerful giver. He also makes a cheerful giver. When we surrender that to him, when we say, God, make me a cheerful giver, give me an extra measure of motivation and obedience in this, he will do that. The more we give, the more joy we have. Don't settle for less joy. C.S. Lewis said, the problem isn't that our wants are too big. It's that they're too small. We're like a kid playing in a mud puddle, not understanding that there's a holiday at sea on offer. It's not that we want too much. It's that we don't want nearly enough. But God wants us to want more. He wants us to want bigger. I've never seen the children of God go hungry or their children begging bread. They always are generous and lend freely. Psalm 37, Psalm 37, 25 and 26. The children of God never go hungry. They always lend freely. They're always generous. Proverbs 19:17. This never fails to amaze me. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. He who is kind to the poor 
lends to the Lord. Notice the language of that. God values generosity toward the poor particularly, but just generally. He values generosity so much that he inspired the writer of this proverb to create a sentence structure that appears as though God places himself in our debt. Think about that for just a second. Does God own everything? Do we owe him anything? No, but if you're kind to the poor, you lend to the Lord. That's amazing. That's amazing. And God will reward him for what he has done. How will we decide to use our time, talent, and treasure? When the history of this church is written, what will the historians say about 2021 in this church? What will they write about what we did with what God gave us? The good news is, it's up to us. We get to decide. We get to decide whether the historians will be kind to us or whether we're going to be the guy who says, well, I knew you were a hard master and so I buried your talent in the ground. We get to make that choice. So, as we close with a hymn, let's think about how we want to answer that question. And let's think about how we want to honor God with the resources that he has entrusted to us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Minnetrista Baptist Church is a community of Christ followers who value preaching and teaching scripture, biblical obedience, community, prayer, and evangelism. If you'd like to learn more about Minnetrista Baptist Church, please visit our website at minnetristachurch.org and come by for a Sunday morning service. We'd love to meet you.